Happy uh, Memorial Day weekend to you. You are all, thanks so much uh, for responding to that. Uh, you are the smart ones who didn't go away for the weekend and you're not gonna be all exhausted on Tuesday. So happy Memorial Day to you. Um, I do uh, just wanna say thank you so much um, because uh, starting this Friday, me and my family, thanks to you guys and your generosity to us, uh, we will be taking a two month sabbatical uh, just to try to re-energize, refresh, uh, to look ahead to life and ministry for the next five years and beyond. Uh, that doesn't mean that we won't be maybe around and things like that, but uh, we are. We're just we're looking forward to that. And um, yeah, I'm just really grateful to be able to help lead a church that would even allow us to do something like that. I feel like that's pretty rare. And it's pretty exciting, too, because this is not something I feel like we're crawling to the finish line or we're just burning out and this is a life or death thing. But this really does feel like an opportunity uh, for us to, to go into it excited about ministry. I know for myself, I feel really energized about life and ministry right now. And so in a sense, it's hard to, to stop just for a little bit and to refresh. But at the same time, I'd, I guess I'd rather be doing it that way than just burning out as we go into it. And so I'll have to say thank you so much uh, for allowing us to do something like this. Um, tonight, I do want to direct your attention to your Bible. So if you grab it, uh, please open it up to the book of Acts. Acts is the primary passage of scripture that we've been walking through uh, this year as a church family. Um, and we're going to be finishing up Acts by the end of July. And tonight I have the privilege of teaching from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21 is primarily where we're going to be hanging out. Um, so uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts 15, 1 through 21. And if you're using a Bible under your seat, uh, you can see on the screen, you could find that page on page 600. So uh, just try to jog your memory here right before Easter uh, is the last time we were in Acts. And, and what's been going on in the book of Acts is, is that people have been listening to the commission of Jesus. So remember, Jesus died on a cross. He was resurrected from the grave. He appeared to about 500 people. He ascended. And before he ascended to the right hand of God, before he will return one day and make all things new, he gave his followers a commission to go out into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. And so what you've seen from the beginning of this book of Acts is that people are loving Jesus by obeying Jesus and going out and doing what he's asked them to do. It's pretty powerful just seeing this, this movement happening. And so right before Easter, you see Paul and Barnabas, they've, they went on this sort of three-year-long journey, that what's categorized as the first missionary journey. And as they went out on this three-year-long journey, they saw all these people who don't have Judaism in their background come to faith in Jesus, and their lives were radically changed. It's, it's an incredible story what we're seeing unfold here. But then we get to Acts chapter 15, and we see a conflict that's beginning to rise, a, a disagreement, if you will. And, and it, it results in a debate, a debate. Now, I know when I said that word right then, debate, some of you had your stomach churn. You might not like debates. I don't know. Uh, but if you're anything like me, I, I enjoy debates. I'm not going to lie. I, I enjoy apologetics. Um, I like to think of myself as a logical person, so I enjoy these things. Uh, my wife might disagree with that. I'm not really sure. But I, I love hearing two opposing worldviews collide in the form of words and ideas. It's just fascinating to me. And I'll just be completely honest with you. I even like those presidential debates. 
right? Those are really annoying presidential debates, but there's way too many of them. I actually enjoy those debates even, okay? But, but there is something about debates that I think you probably uh, understand, and I'm not trying to be Debbie Downey here, but that is debates rarely accomplish what they say they're trying to accomplish. Usually in debates, you have two opposing worldviews and, and people are sharing differing ideas and the goal is to persuade the other person. But what happens is most people come and sit in a room and when they hear their view being presented, they sort of are cheering inside. But when the opposing view is being presented, they might be digging their heels in, just sort of irritated with that person. And so debates for a lot of us, we might see as, as not really anything that's important or that's valuable, they rarely make a difference, but what's interesting is the debate we see in our scripture tonight is one of the most significant stories in the entire book of Acts. It's a debate that, that really catapults us, it really launches us into the rest of the book, and honestly, it launches itself into our hearts tonight. It's a debate that made a massive difference in the world. It's a, it's a debate that has massive implications on our lives. People who live in Corvallis, Oregon, in 2017. And so this will be on the screen if you care where we're headed, but this passage is so beautifully broken down for us, and I want us to examine these four things. In, in verses one through five, we see this debate that's honestly worth debating. Uh, and in verses six through 18, we see these two truths that are presented that in this debate, the first truth is the work of God. In verses six through 12, the second is the word of God in 13 through 18. And finally, we see what the will of God is because of this debate. So first, a debate worth debating. Look in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, quote, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this word debate, it comes up a couple times in the section as you saw. And so what's interesting is quite a few years had passed since the, the v conversion of the very first Gentile. So a non-Jewish person, Right? So many estimate about 10 to 14 years has gone by. And so the Jewish believers had, come, had become quite comfortable with the general concept of Gentile Christians. That's, that's not a problem. There is a need, though, to clarify the content of the gospel here. That's what's going on. And the question really being presented is, what constitutes being a Christian? So we see that Jewish Christians are struggling to reconcile because of their fear what non-Jewish Christians should have to adhere to. And, and the tension is presented as to not only how will Jewish and non-Jewish Christians relate, 
being that they have very different cultural values, but more so, what is required to be a faithful Christian? And so many old school Jewish believers were alarmed that Gentiles were welcomed into the Christian faith by baptism and not circumcision. So in essence, they were becoming Christians without becoming Jews. Could they really have conversion without circumcision? Could they really have faith in Jesus without the works of the law? Could they have a commitment to the church without a devotion to Judaism? Well, for the Jews, their answer was no. It was no. And some men from among their ranks traveled from Syrian Antioch, disturbing the peace, and they made these huge statements. I don't know if you caught them as I read it. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa, right? It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big statement. This led to uh, no small dissension and debate. They were insisting that without circumcision, converts could not enter the kingdom of God. It's a pretty big deal. And then once in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas would be greeted with the same sort of pushback. Quote, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these people are telling Gentile converts to, to, who have faith in Jesus that, that having faith in Jesus was not enough. It wasn't sufficient for salvation. They must add to faith circumcision. And they must add to their circumcision observance of the law. In the words of John Stott, he said about this, he said, quote, they must let Moses complete what Jesus had begun and let the law supplement the gospel. So what's happening is people are saying, Jesus isn't enough. You have to do these things as well. They're adding to the gospel. The issue before them was huge. It was immense. They were not deciding on doctrine even or church practice, whether to baptize in Jesus' name or to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The way of salvation, the gospel, the foundation of your Christian faith is at stake. Can I get a woe, right? I mean, are you on the edge of your seat here? Hold on to your hats, people, right? What's going to happen next? This is insane, right? This is, this is a big deal. This really matters for your life, okay? So there are two truths that are presented here that, that in this debate, and we see the first being the work of God, okay? Look at verse 6. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, there's that word again, Peter stood up. And said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Then all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter gets up, and he mic drops before the invention of microphones. Seriously, okay? He, he, he drops the mic 
And then Peter fades into the background, never to be heard of again in the book of Acts. That's literally the last thing he said. And it was powerful. Peter speaks silence. And they're debating. He speaks. There's silence. Well, what, it, what would have brought silence upon a group like this? Well, what happened? Well, the answer is Peter magnified the work of God, not the ideas of people. Peter gets up. They're debating. He magnifies the work of God and not the ideas of people. And there's silence. This just went from a debate about which group of people is right. And Peter points out not just what people think. Peter points out what God thinks. But not only just what God thinks, he's pointing out what God does, what God has done. Well, what has God done? What's his work? Well, let's consider the content of Peter's mic-dropping speech. You see in verse 7, he says, God made a choice. He's referring back to the moment when God sends Peter to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius and all of his household becomes Christians. They become believers. He says, God made a choice. In verse 8, he magnifies that God knows the heart. In verse 8, he says, God bore witness. Literally, he showed his approval for these Gentiles. God did. How did he do it? By giving them the same spirit. Then in verse 9, it says, God purified their hearts by faith. This demonstrates that that inward purity of the heart makes fellowship possible. Not, Not the external purity of diet and ritual. It is a purification by faith, not works. However, the central point of Peter's testimony was not simply that the Gentiles believed and received the Spirit, but that at each stage, God, he says, made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Four times in Peter's speech, this theme is repeated. You see it in verse 8, by giving them the Spirit, just as he did to us. In verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them. In verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which is a reference to the Gentiles, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And then in verse 11, he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Do you see that? God shows no favoritism. God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. They didn't even memorize a bunch of Old Testament scripture in order to make themselves acceptable to God. They were saved and they were declared righteous and given the gift of the Holy Spirit solely on the basis of what Christ had accomplished for them. And just to be really clear here, the Jews did not need to be circumcised or memorize a bunch of Old Testament scripture in order to make themselves acceptable to God. They were saved and declared righteous and given the gift of the Holy Spirit solely on the basis of what Christ had accomplished for them. It goes both ways. And the response was silence. Silence. See, listen, this makes Christianity unique to every other belief system in the world. Every other belief system in the world that you would waltz onto the campus of Oregon State or waltz into your workplace tomorrow or down your street. Christianity is unique to every other belief system in the world. 
Because we're not given a message that says to, to people just generically, hey, do good and try your best. That's not the message of Christianity. Our message is that a dead man got up from the grave after being in that grave for three days and he presents himself to us and offers us brand new life only found in him. It's a message that tells us that we aren't trying to search for God and, and searching to find God or that we're trying to achieve salvation somehow. No, the message of Christianity is that God found us, that God achieved salvation for us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So even the thought of, of telling people to adhere externally to laws in order to be saved, it really just misses the crux of the matter. Because you and I, we don't need behavioral change. We need heart change. And salvation in Jesus offers us that. Have you, have you ever gone to wash your hands? And when you're done, you look over and you realize somebody who took out the old towel didn't put in a new towel? Or maybe you're in a public bathroom or something and you look over and all the paper towels are gone and they haven't upgraded to the air blowers yet or something. Right? Isn't that the most like annoying feeling ever? You just have these like wet hands. What do you do with your hands? You, you probably dry them off on your clothes, right? Unless you're some, you know, high standard germaphobe or something. You just air dry your hands for like an hour or whatever. Right? Like the point is that when you get your hands wet, the only way to make them dry is by another source that's dry. Like you need a towel or something. You can't just rub your hands together. No, your hands are wet. It's not going to make them dry. You can't grab a wet towel or something else that's wet that's not going to dry your hands. This is really common sense, right? We would all sit here and say, yeah, Josh, this is so natural. Why are you even thinking about these sort of dumb things? This is where my mind goes, okay? But at the same time, you know you need an outside source to come, something that's unlike your wet hands to dry those hands. That's, that's what Jesus is for us. He is very unlike us. He is the outside source that comes to not just dry your hands, but to cleanse your heart, to regenerate your heart. You and I, we, we need that in order to achieve salvation. We aren't changed in life. Just think about it. You aren't changed in life by somebody just telling you what to do. You are most changed when we experience and receive the actions of other people. And the gospel cuts deep into our hearts and it regenerates them because the gospel doesn't tell us what to do. It allows us to experience what Jesus has done. You can put it this way, the gospel isn't a to-do list. It's a done list. It's not a to-do list, it's a done list. And that's powerful to experience. My, um, my daughter, if she was older, I'd ask her permission tell you this story, but she's not, so I'm not asking permission, but this is hopefully helpful. So she just turned six, and our little girl, she's my little girl, man. Uh, she is so precious. She is so sweet and thoughtful and, and likes to create things for people. She's really funny and creative and all these different things, uh, but one thing Liz and I consistently um, struggle with with her is especially when people are kind to her or loving towards her, she, she for some reason, kind of walls up and, and is, can be really mean. And we just don't really know how to help in parenting her in this. And so we will often say to her, like, no, you should be kind. 
You should love people. We're trying to direct her towards the correct response to people. Well, she just turned six. And on her birthday, you know, we celebrated her life. You know, we bring cupcakes to school or Liz brings her lunch or whatever to her, you know, and eats lunch with her. And we open presents. And, and you know, it's your birthday, right? Everyone's nice to you on your birthday. Everyone is kind to you on your birthday. Everyone loves you on your birthday. At the end of the day, it was, it was the most unnatural response from her that I thought would be coming. It's the end of her day, and she just starts bawling. And Liz, being a great mother, just sits down with her and is like, why are you crying? And she's saying, because people have been so nice to me today. People have been so loving to me today. And I don't love people. I'm not that loving towards people. We talk about that phrase, out of the mouth of babes or whatever, right? I mean, she's six. And she's experiencing the actions of love and kindness from other people. And it's just, mag- it's affecting her. It's magnifying how her lack of kindness is present in her life. Or it's magnifying her lack of love in her own life for other people. The, it's the actions of other people that, that, that will magnify. It will really affect your heart. I could sit there and tell her all day long, you should be kind. You should love people, but it's really the actions of love and kindness towards her. That's why I think the Bible says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That's what's happening here. It's not presenting rules to people say, hey, be saved. It's saying, no, Jesus has done this. Let that affect your, your heart. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the middle, and Jesus is the end of our salvation. Now, I know that sounds really simple, and I actually believe God intends it to be that way, but let me tell you where we are tempted in this. See, we are tempted to take our personal preferences and our opinions and our prejudice, and we're tempted to add those things to the gospel. We might say things like, now, now that you've believed in Jesus, uh, it's important for me to tell you that you should only read the ESV Bible, Okay? Uh, how do you plan to vote in November? You, you know there's only one right way to vote, right? Okay. Oh, we have so many other definitions of modesty and decency. I mean, you allow your kids to watch PG movies, right? You listen to that kind of music. You don't drink alcohol. Or I forgot we live in Oregon. You, you, you don't drink alcohol? Right? right? Or we or we could be more spiritual. We we can hold people in our minds to adhering to a certain standard of prayer or reading their Bibles or in their involvement in the church or the extent of their understanding even of the things of God or their ability to articulate their understanding of the things of God. We, name, we might not require circumcision or a strict adherence to the law of Moses, but we certainly have our ways of adding to the gospel and determining the works that make someone a bona fide Christian in our minds. And our text screams at us, that work is Jesus. A person is acceptable to God, not because of their performance, but because of the work of Christ. So the first truth that ended the debate was magnifying the work of God. The second truth that ended the debate was magnifying the word of God. Look in verse 13. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which he's actually referring to Peter. It's another name people would call him by. Peter, Simeon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So at this point in Acts, Christianity is not only growing numerically, it's growing culturally. Diversity is on the rise, and with that, James opens up his Bible to show that this shouldn't be a shocker to everybody. The scripture that James cited was Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, and James showed how the coming of the Gentiles into the people of God, into the family of God, was actually grounded in the Old Testament prophets. In Amos, the prophet Amos spoke of the restoration of the kingdom of David, who was a king over Israel at the time. Just as David ruled over Edom is the idea, and he ruled over many nations, the Messiah would rule over the nations and gather a people called by his name for himself. James was rightly declaring that God's plan was that the Messiah, Jesus, would reign over the nations. This means the gospel then was not a reform movement within Judaism. Jesus didn't come just to kind of reform Jewish ideas and theology a little bit. No, no, the gospel was good news for the entire world, for every nation. You see here how the mission of God was magnified. The vision that was caught in Antioch, if you remember back, was now taking shape in Jerusalem. See, it's God's dream that we not only tolerate, but that we embrace, and that we do life with people who are very unlike us. It's God's dream not just that you tolerate people that are unlike you, but that you embrace and you do life with people who are very unlike us. See, it's our natural tendency in life to surround ourselves with people who are only like us, that that's why there's so much segregation in our societies. And the problem is, is that that is not a solution for Christians. That's not an option on the table for us. We are not called into an echo chamber. That's not what Jesus calls us into. We are called into a kaleidoscope because God is a God of all people. I'm gonna have Jacob, you're back there, right, man? Uh, Throw some on the screen. You're on it. This is a map where uh, it's it's dictating for us all the major world religions. So there's four. There's Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity, okay? And of the four major religions in the world, you will see that they are mainly attached to a certain culture. You see, Islam is primarily located there in the center of the world. And you and I both know that if you see a Muslim maybe in a Western context or somewhere else in the world, there's a lot of cultural values that they bring into their new life where they now live. If you look at, at Hinduism, you see that primarily in South Asia, or, or Buddhism is primarily over there in, in East Asia, right? But, but you see there Christianity, the purple. Okay, I know you can't read the little thing on the left there. But Christianity, you see it in not only the United States, but in Latin America and South America and uh, Greenland even. I don't know if anybody lives there. Uh, (laughs) 
desolate places of the world, okay? Europe, Africa, parts of Asia, right? You see, all the major world religions, when they, when they, their, their faith system is so attached to culture, to, to be like this, to live like this, but Christianity, it, the re, it exists and it breaks through every culture. That's why when you go into Africa and you worship with African people, the, the, the church in Africa looks very different than here, let me tell you that. You go to all different parts of Asia, all these different parts of the world, if you travel and you worship with other believers in other countries, it's very, very different. But it's the same Jesus, it's the same gospel. The reason is because of this word of God that James is quoting and is applying here in Acts 15. Christianity isn't a cultural faith system. It breaks into every culture and doesn't just conform the culture to its religious look, if you will, but it transforms hearts to better live out their faith in that particular culture. You see, when the church loses track of the gospel and this truth that Jesus is Lord of all nations, when you lose track of that, the result in your life will be this unconscious need for you to create lists of things that are clean and unclean activities. And what's going to happen is the rebirth of being a Pharisee is going to happen in your heart. There's a quote I really like by Richard Loveless. He's over at Gordon Conwell, at least he was. And he wrote this in his book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. This will be on the screen. He said, those who are not secure in Christ, cast about for spiritual life preservers by fixing upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as means of self-recommendation. It's kind of that idea of, I'm a good Christian because of this other thing other than the gospel. The culture is put on as if it were armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh. It can never be removed except through comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. Once faith is exercised, however, a Christian is free to wear his culture like a comfortable suit of clothes, and he is released to admire and appreciate the differing expressions of Christ shining out through other cultures. See, when you have a comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ, it takes out every form of self-recommendation that you would cling to to identify yourself. It strips away all cultural barriers in your life. And the fact that cultural issues get in the way or become normative reveals to us a lack of understanding in the gospel. It means you are looking to something other than Jesus alone to save you. What this is saying is this, okay? In some ways, you can take such pride in how you express your faith that it indicates that you really don't understand faith in the first place. And it's possible that if you are a Christian, that you are more dependent on the culture of being a Christian than you are dependent on Jesus himself and that you can identify yourself more by how you live as a Christian than based on who you live for and why you live. Or you live for the ritual of your faith rather than the substance. See, there are some divide issues in the church things that you should divide over, okay? We don't have time to go in those tonight. 
But when it comes to embracing somebody as a brother or sister in Christ, there is only one condition. There's only one condition, and that is them turning from sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. That's it. And that will bridge every culture. That'll bridge every culture. Um, there's these restaurants I wish we had way more of here in Oregon called BJ's Brew House. Been in California, they're everywhere. They're amazing. They specialize in deep dish pizza. I had my first barbecue chicken pizza at BJ's. It blew my mind, okay? Loved it. There was a problem, though. They put cilantro and onions in their pizza, okay? But this is how it comes. They, they kind of ruined it because a barbecue chicken pizza has what? Barbecue sauce, chicken, and then the, the necessary pizza parts, right? Like bread and cheese, okay? If you have those elements, that is barbecue chicken pizza, but, but people ruin that by adding cilantro and onions to it. Those aren't the main dish, right? Those are extras. They're fine, but you take out those elements and you still have barbecue chicken pizza and it doesn't taste as bad, okay? You're following me. I hear you, okay? Put it to you this way. Jesus, his gospel, or the meal, it's the, the, the pizza. And there are ingredients that we shouldn't add to the meal and say to others, if, if you don't eat and enjoy this pizza in this way, you can't say you enjoy barbecue chicken pizza. You just can't say that. In fact, only adding those things and saying that will just create segregation. You follow me? Are you hungry yet? Okay. See, God is a God of all nations. The church is diverse and it stems into every culture. This is critical for us to understand because this then means, this then means this, that a healthy church is a place where your preferences are not going to be fulfilled all the time. This means that a healthy gospel-centered, Jesus-centered church is a church where your preferences are not going to be fulfilled all the time because a church that follows just my preferences, even as a pastor, means that, that I'm pushing people away. And a, a church, we don't gather around preferences, we gather around a person, Jesus. So the mic has been dropped the debate is over. What's the result? Well, God's word is revealed, will, sorry, is revealed to us, okay? Verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then we're not going to do this, but if you read verses 22 through 35, it basically says they went and told everybody this is what is now true. Okay, that's literally all it says. Okay. So, what's happening here? Some have read the conclusion of this council to be the opinion or the best guess of James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But what James calls his judgment, what you see there in verse 19, is once it is accepted by the leaders. And it's later referred to as the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 28. Okay? So the decision of this council 
was indeed the will of God. Okay? I mean, a lot of us ask that question over and over again. What's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for my life? Well, I'm not really sure, but here is one answer to this. Okay? This is God's will for your life and my life. Their decision was that they should not trouble the Gentiles who turned to God. They shouldn't require them to become Jewish. That wasn't necessary. That wasn't even essential for salvation. However, they did ask that a few concessions be made for Jewish believers who lived according to the old school customs. That's what they're doing here. The basis for these concessions has nothing to do with salvation. You need to understand that. They're not saying, hey, you're saved by faith, but hey, just don't do these things. Okay? That's not what's happening here. The basis for these concessions has everything to do with fellowship, with Christian community. So the letter they delivered contained requests of the Gentiles that related to ritual practices. And the goal was to avoid practices that would offend Jewish believers and essentially make fellowship with them impossible. So they're being asked to abstain from things polluted by idols, that is, things sacrificed to idols, from blood and things strangled mean they should follow a kosher diet if they were to invite a Jewish believer over for a meal. And lastly, they should abstain from ritualistically unclean sexual relationships. And it's important because I think the context provides us with the correct interpretation when it's talking about sexual immorality. Because abstaining from things offered to idols and following a kosher diet both deal with ritual laws. So furthermore, the moral laws were given for all Christians. So we all know, morally, sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage is a big no-no. That's how God designed it. So what's, what's he talking about here? If everybody kind of knows that, well, I think this relates to incest and marriage outside of the covenant community of, of, of faith. Because Jewish Christians believed that contact with people who, who took things that were offered to idols, things that were like non-kosher food or, or, or engaging in improper marriage, those things would defile them. So as a means of bearing with Jewish believers, the Gentiles were asked to make concessions so that they actually could have fellowship with these people, a cross-cultural divide. The whole point of going and telling Gentile Christians to refrain from things is so that believers could cross these cultural boundaries and experience fellowship and and true community with each other. It's to experience community. Because we all need community, especially this sort of diverse, deep community. We, We can only have, though, deep, diverse community if we understand something, something critical. And that's what these clean laws mean, these, these clean laws. So you see, all these clean laws, they, they were cultural markers or practices to remind us that there is such a thing in the universe as clean and unclean. There is such a thing as acceptable and unacceptable, as pure and impure, that there is a, a radical purity, there is a cleansing that is required of us to access God. Not not just an external ceremonial cleansing, but a true, deep purity without which we cannot access God. And we know Jews and all their adherents, they they weren't able to adhere to all the laws perfectly. I mean, look again in verse 8. It says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us 
in them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. In other words, cleanness and uncleanness was never about one group of people versus another group of people. It's about our sinful uncleanness and a God who is infinitely pure. See, circumcision was a literal cutting off. I don't need to tell you that. And it symbolized that those who were impure would be cut off. Jesus on the cross experiences that cutting off. And he is the one who's treated as unclean so that we could be treated as clean. He provides a true cleansing, a true purity of heart that all the ceremonial cleansing and all the rituals in the world could never provide you. The dietary laws were a reminder that there is clean and unclean. The clothing laws, they're a reminder that the clean and unclean shouldn't be mixed. And they weren't intended to tell you how to have a healthy diet or a now healthy diet or what fabrics work best for your life. They were to help us understand that all of us are radically unclean and sinful and that we can't go to God without a radical cleansing. Guys, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became unclean. He became unclean. And in many respects, there was nothing more unclean in the Old Testament than death itself. You didn't go near a dead person. And he died to make us clean. When you understand that, that he bore our uncleanness for, for all of us, that allows us to enter into very deep community with one another, diverse community. Because you will never say of another culture or of another person that they are unclean because you know how deeply unclean you were and how Jesus made you clean. If you can get here, what I'm trying to communicate to you right now and see how unclean Jesus became so that you could be clean today, then maybe your life can begin to open its hands to your preferences and be willing to endure, heck, maybe even enjoy another person's preferences for the sake of deep, diverse community. How? How does, how does that even connect? Well, if you realize that you need to be cleaned and that Jesus makes you clean and now your life revolves around Jesus and another person is unclean and they're made clean and their life revolves around Jesus, then all of a sudden our lives revolve around a person and not a preference. My dad's birthday was, is today. Happy birthday, dad. Uh, he's 61 today. Last year, I had the privilege of my whole family coming in, and we celebrated his 60th birthday here in Corvallis. If you're here, maybe you saw my family. Um, but, but when my family got together for my dad's birthday, we weren't all arguing about our different ways of doing life, you know? We weren't sitting there like, what do you want to do today? Well, I want to do this. Well, I want to do this. We weren't sitting there and arguing with each other. Why? Because us being together all revolved around this person, my dad. So all of our decisions just flowed from the thinking of what does dad want to do? What does dad want? What's dad's will, right? 
And, and that really brought just a, an inordinate amount of peace to my family. It was so natural. Why? Because he's the guy we're here for, right? Our lives revolve around him, not, no longer my preference or what I want to do today. It's, it's what does he want to do today? What do you want to do, Dad? Right? We were submitted to his will. And for us, this is the goal. This is the will of God. We would gather around the person of Jesus and see that we are joined together solely through faith in him, not some cultural preference or some cultural rules that we have presented to one another. Belief in Jesus alone actually allows us to experience deep, diverse community. It's the only thing that ever will. You won't find it anywhere else. See, when we magnify the work of God, we magnify the word of God and the will of God, we will gather around a person and not a preference. And as a result, deep, diverse community can form. Let me tell you, that kind of community will change your life. And I believe that kind of community will actually change the world.